Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Tris Lumley, Director of Innovation and Development at NPC. We speak about what open philanthropy means, how charities can cultivate it, and what it could mean for the benefit of the entire charity sector. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable, unrestricted income from business sales. They are on a mission to help charities unlock some of the £2.3 trillion in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side the commercial participation agreement of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource and legal fees, and streamlines supporter experience, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. So without further ado, here is Tris Lumley speaking with me about open philanthropy. I'm delighted to be joined by Tris Lumley, Director of Innovation and Development at NPC. Tris, welcome to Charity Chats. Thanks very much, Samuel. I'm delighted to be here. I guess the first question is, what is your background and what has led you to your role as Director of Innovation and Development at NPC? Sure. Well, I guess I started my career in, uh, in management consulting back at Deloitte. Uh, a long time ago, back in ooh, 1997 or something like that, and uh, and actually found I wasn't wasn't all that interested in just helping businesses improve when those businesses meant nothing to me at all. Um, uh, I'm sure they were you know, you know great organisations, but ultimately just helping organisations run better and make their shareholders more money didn't really motivate me. Um, and after various uh, various things, including teaching scuba diving in Honduras and Thailand, which I oh, thoroughly yeah. recommend to everyone, <laughs> bit of a, a bit of a, a career change in between there. I, I happened across this organization, NPC, that was, um, you know, that was basically saying, look, we want to help make the charity sector run better. Hmm. And I thought, hold on, this is something that I could get interested in. This is something that sounds real and sounds motivating to me. Uh, and that was 2004, uh, which is getting on for a long time ago. So, you know, I, I would have been there for 19 years come yeah. April. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, I've, uh, throughout that time, I've helped, um, to build our work around theories of change and evaluation and impact measurement for which we're really well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found that making those things turn into the kind of progress that we hope to see was not necessarily straightforward. Had you had experience of charities prior to joining MPC? Had you volunteered or fundraised or um, benefited from any charities in your past? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, probably my earliest memory of, uh, of charity was um, helping my mum uh, and, uh, and my sisters to sort the the thousands of envelopes of coins that and notes that we'd collected um with tier fund collections that we used to do yeah yeah to run those locally and i i remember very much the the dining room table just piled high with these tiny little envelopes full of coins and sorting them out and seeing how much money we've raised so uh, you know it was a fundraiser i guess first and foremost and i am a fundraiser now i suppose my first uh my first involvement with 
the work of charities was with was with Amnesty International mm -hmm. uh, and a, a school amnesty group that um, I was part of um, campaigning in, at the time around the death penalty in the US and actually visiting the US embassy to discuss the benefits of the death penalty with them, which um, wow. didn't didn't go that well. Oh, <laughs> But they were expecting you though were you didn't just turn up was it kind of more yeah, no, we, did, we didn't just rock up <laughs> we had an appointment they were okay. polite enough given an appointment and i guess your work then over the last 19 years has probably given you quite a i'd imagine quite a ver uh, kind of a um a good insight into the variety of different charities and causes has it Yes, it has. And I, you know, I started my charity career um, visiting charities and, and doing research um, to understand. Actually, my first research project was on aging and older people and the charities that worked with with older people. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember vividly visiting lots of community organisations everywhere from Glasgow to, to Liverpool to London um, and elsewhere and seeing, you know, these brilliant committed organizations with incredibly committed and passionate staff and volunteers um, just doing amazing work in the community, often really unseen, uh, unrecognized um, and, and unrewarded. Uh, and yeah, I was, you know, throughout the last 19 years of my career, I've been um, fundamentally motivated by trying to help get resources to where they can do the most good and to those organizations that are doing fantastic work every day, but almost uh, no one has heard of. Mm. Um, and, and certainly those organizations that need much more than they have, I think without, um, without exception, every organization that I've ever seen that's doing amazing work doesn't have the resources that it needs to, mm. to deliver on its mission. And that I found, um, both fundamentally mo motivating and and incredibly depressing, incredibly hard to confront. Today we're talking about open philanthropy. What do we mean by that? Well, I, I, I think we mean a couple of quite concrete tangible things by open philanthropy and then something sort of bigger and that so the concrete and tangible is that by open we mean philanthropy that's open on the way in and the way out and by that i mean it's inclusive on the way in so philanthropy that invites others in and says help us to see the world through your eyes help us to understand the challenges that we need to tackle from your perspective, help us to uh, decide on the right uh, strategies, the right decisions to make um, with your insight. So it's inclusive mm -hmm. and it's also open on the way out. So it's transparent. So it also says the work that we're doing, we think is important and it's important enough that we're going to share what we do with everyone so that you can build on it. And so that if we're a foundation involving people in our work and doing a good job of that, we want to share it with everyone else so others can build on it. So it's open both on the way in and the way out. And then the bigger thing, the bigger picture thing that I, I think flows from that is that, uh, that philanthropy and foundations, grant making trusts, individuals, 
the, any of those that people may have come across, they tend to operate in their own little silos. And in a way, you know, of course they do. It's their money. Why shouldn't they do that? But because of that, the, the great work that many of them are doing is like lots of Lego bricks scattered on the floor. Uh, and that's an analogy that maybe I overuse. My, my son's bedroom is absolutely pit packed with exactly that situation. I suppose that's from the, the funders and the charities' points of view too, right? In terms of, I know that we've talked before on the show um, a few times now about how um, a lot of larger funders, for example, grant giving trusts, for example, are looking for charities that are working more collaboratively to um, have a bigger impact or maybe kind of part of a kind of a chain of services to support a beneficiary on lots of different fronts. And I guess that on the flip side of that, there's also arguably um i suppose even from a, from the funders point of view it makes sense that funders would work more collaboratively with other funders um as of course they do most charities aren't funded by one organization are they so i suppose seeing those kind of connections that connectivity um at either end is is probably quite a useful thing and also presumably delivering uh, or more likely to deliver a greater result for the charity and their beneficiaries yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and I think that you know, it it brings to mind um, a chat I once had with the director of a relatively small grant making trust, and we were talking about uh, charities and collaboration, and we were talking about how, in his experience, he was saying that you know often these organisations in the same field are competing with each other, uh, and then he sort of took a pause, and he said, Do you know, I suppose. Do you think maybe we play some role in in creating that kind of competitive behavior and i was just i bit my tongue as i'm afraid i have many times as a fundraiser uh by the tongue rather than the hand that feeds but yeah. but of course you know I, the i think most charities most staff within charities would love to collaborate more mm -hmm. to make their work um more effective you know if you've got um if you've got a charity that's supporting families to to make sure that their kids are ready to learn in school you can bet that that charity wants to collaborate with the schools wants to collaborate with the social workers wants to collaborate with the you know the mental health organization that's working in that school as well but quite frankly if they're funded in the way that most organizations are funded having to sort of piece together fragments of funding to make their services add up to something approaching the budget that they need. Um, that's nowhere near having the kind of slack so that that charity worker in that, um, in that organization can go out and build the relationships with those schools uh, and bring the organizations together that could be collaborating. So of course it's funders that need to be collaborating more in order to drive that more collaborative behavior and i think that's the the thing that i've you know one of the things that i found most depressing on various days of the week but then motivating on others is that you know what if actually we could bring together the different organizations in a either it's in a particular place or working on a particular subject and help them actually to piece together a plan that makes sense together hmm. and then they could take that plan out to funders and funders could fund that because those organizations were united and had come together and had a 
a kind of a sensible way to proceed. But if those organizations are having to scrabble around and compete just to, to make ends meet, then they're not going to be able to collaborate. Of course, they're going to compete with each other and they don't have the time to, to kind of build that solidarity. So I think, you know, the, the dream for all of this is that the money that is in philanthropy is some of the freest money in society. It can really help to build the sector into something more coordinated and united and to build that solidarity. But if it treats us like um, competitors mm. who are going to pretend no one else exists just to, to win the money that we need for our stuff today, then that's what we're going to get. We're going to get the worst version of ourselves. I follow a, um, a few blogs and one of them, uh, I can't remember the name of the blog now, but he talks about the Hunger Games. He talks about charities in the Hunger Games. Right. And I suppose that that same thing that you talked about where charities are pitched ultimately against each other to vie for favour um, from philanthropists and from companies. But, do, I mean, do you get any kind of sense that that is changing? Do you get any sense that from the work that you've been doing that maybe there's more of an appetite for um, charities working together, funders working together, more kind of transparency, you know, that those types of things? I do, but, so, you know, I, I get the sense of, I mean, throughout my uh, career, I've seen lots of evidence of the desire to collaborate. Um, I think it's where, you know, it's where things get concrete, it's where the rubber meets the road there. Um, that you really want to see that happening, but I think yeah, over the last over the last few years, you've seen things like the um, there's a, a project, a resource called the Funders Collaborative Hub. That I don't know if you've come across, um, but uh, a lot of the funding sector uh, has been involved in that, and the Association of Charitable Foundations in creating a space where funders can say to each other, "Hey, we want to collaborate." And that's great. And, um, and that will build over time. And in the States, elsewhere in the world, then yes, we've seen, you know, we've seen an increase in interest in models for collaboration, like collective impact, or I think that all of those models still tend to leave the power on the side of the funder, right. And, um, and I think what's maybe interesting to put against that is things like movements, so um, everything from Black Lives Matter to, um, you know, the other movements that we've seen around change in the, in the world today, that some funders are thinking, hold on, we need to work out how to, to get to grips with, with funding these things. And this is this kind of grassroots activism. This is how things are really happening. And so I suppose, you know, where the control sits in efforts to build collaboration um, seems quite important. And... Um, I remember someone once saying at the beginning of a at the beginning of a two day conference about feedback and listening to feedback from um, from communities in in the work of charities and philanthropy. He said, "Look, I just want to remind you of the history of shifting power. No one gives it away voluntarily, right? You know, wars, revolutions. The, these are the things that cause people to to transfer power. Uh, and so, I think it's just worth remembering that." I think that will be the same in our sector. 
you may see some some efforts by funders to give a bit more power out but i think if we really want to see significant change actually i think it's the sector that's going to have to the charity sector it's going to have to take power and i think it can do that not by necessarily by bloody revolutions and going and um battering down the the doors of uh, of grant making trust offices but by building the stuff that we think the the funders should be responding to so you know if let's say there are 10 organizations in a local area and they manage to find the time to come together and develop a plan for how they're going to do something about early childhood development or um, working around youth mental health and then they take that out to their funders and they say fund this fund it together mm. is collaboration but it's on our terms then i think that's how um, power might actually shift And I guess it's it's often strikes me, and I've I've worked for a few different charities, but also from the podcast as well. It strikes me that in a lot of cases, I suppose it's the job of the charities to take the solution or one one solution of, of a few solutions to the funder, isn't it? And to really kind of drive change. But I guess also to do that with a some element, I suppose it's a bit of a balancing act, taking a solution, saying this is what we need to do, but also in some cases, having some um, availability for input from the funder as well, to have it as a kind of a co-creation project. I mean, what? How, yeah. I don't know if this is an, a quest, good question to ask or not, Tris, but do, do you feel that there is a, is there any kind of way that charities can kind of manage that balance of solution versus request from funders? I think it's a it's a great question and I think um sometimes they can and sometimes frankly it is incredibly difficult because uh because that kind of that kind of approach that you suggested it kind of needs both parties to be at the table for a for a dialogue for a conversation mm -hmm. and that's not always possible I think anyone anyone who's listening who's a a fundraiser or had any experience of fundraising processes of application processes will know that sometimes it is not a conversation you can fill out a form and you will not get feedback thank you very much you know you will get an answer out of the machine but you cannot pick up the phone it is expressly forbidden so sometimes i think that is that is possible but i think you know, in my experience, I've been very lucky from from NPC working for NPC to have had really pretty good access to the philanthropy community over the years to foundation directors and grants officers and so on. Mm. And I think you need that kind of access to have those kind of conversations. And a lot of people won't have the power to have that. So wouldn't it be great if we could be creating more spaces in which that stuff could happen. And I think that's, um, I sort of, I said a couple of things about open philanthropy. I didn't say the really concrete thing, which is as part of our work on open philanthropy, we're creating funds. We're, um, so we were fundraising over the last couple of years to create in the first instance, a grant making fund that um, is at the moment 
working out how to give a number of grants within the financial hardship space in the UK. Mm, mm. And we've created that space. We've created the, the process, but actually the people that we've invited into that space have set the agenda, set the strategy and the focus and the way of working and will make all of the grant decisions themselves. And the people in those, in those funds are people with lived experience of financial hardship, with uh, charity experience, so practitioners working for charities today, they're funders as well. So it's a, you know, it's a constellation of the kind of people who, when you bring them together, would make really great decisions and would do that co-creation and co-design. Uh, and I think you know that is bits of that are happening in different places. The rise of participatory grant making has been fantastic to see, where there are pots of funding that people with lived experience primarily are, are taking control of. But we're kind of trying to experiment and say, well, um, you know, we could do this with all of the right perspectives that are needed to make good decisions. And we can do that co-creation, but the space has to exist. That's mm -hmm. the thing that I think, you know, we need more of, we need to create those spaces because otherwise a person who is running an organization to, you know, to tackle fuel poverty or food poverty or whatever it might be in a rural community today. Are they going to have the time to step out of that work and, you know, create a coalition and bring everyone together and do all of this stuff and then take that out to funders? Mm -hmm. That's a really big ask. So we're recording this conversation in the winter of 2022, and it's a time of economic climate and social crisis, as we've already touched upon. With so many charities struggling to fund and continue their work, why is it important, do you think, that charities find the time to develop a more inclusive strategy? And what initial steps should they be uh, taking to do this? we're in the middle of, or maybe we're at the beginning of the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got the autumn statement coming later this week. None of us expect that to result in, well, no, let's be honest. It will not result in more money going into public spending and therefore towards the work of, of charities. It's mm. going to be the opposite of that. And, uh, and I think the next few years are just, um, they're both terrifying and heartbreaking, right? We know the the real cost of this in terms of in terms of people's lives, and charities are on the on the front lines of this. So, so now I think what what the only hope really is to to come together and to to work together in some way. There there just is no way that organisations on their own can can say, well, we'll just struggle on. We'll mm. just, I mean, just do what just struggle to survive but maybe if those organizations can start to come together and find the ways that their different pieces do fit and maybe if funders are supporting those efforts because like i said it's, it's not going to be easy for anyone to to find the time to do that when they're trying to um, deal with rising demands and shrinking resources right on their doorsteps but if we can create some of those spaces and say, look, we're in crisis, we have to think radically differently, then maybe you can connect up some of those pieces. And maybe an organisation, you know, can start um, 
might stop delivering some of its services because someone over here is better placed to deliver those and could grow the work they're doing. Or maybe a funder can help two or three organizations to share some of the services that they don't all need to replicate. Or whatever it is, we have to find those efficiencies and we have to find those connections to have any chance at all. And, you know, to go back to the original Lego analogy, those pieces on their own uh, are just, they're not the point. The, the point is what can be built with bringing them together. And if individual charities object to being called Lego bricks, I apologize, it's a bit of a reductive analogy, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, in we know that in a, just down the road from me, I know that there are a bunch of different organizations that if they could be more connected up, uh, their offer could be much more effective and efficient. And I think, mm -hmm. Funders have to step up to the plate and they have to be looking for those opportunities so that the charities don't have to build all of that for themselves. Do you think there might be more funding from any, from, I mean, I suppose in the same way that we saw with COVID, some of the funders ended up giving much more because uh, of the need. Do you think there's any kind of hope that, that you know, the, the pot that all charities are trying to take from might in some ways get bigger? Well, look, I'm an optimist, so I'm going to say, I, you know, I hope that there is more of a response from philanthropy that means some of that. Certainly in COVID, we saw uh, the philanthropic sector step up in, in lots of ways. Uh, we, we're we concerned that we haven't really seen that response yet in the cost of living crisis. Mm. And, uh, and that, you know, that may be for all sorts of different reasons. It may be for foundations worrying about the performance of their investments and how much they actually have to give. It may be that some actually gave more than they kind of should have during the pandemic. And so um, we're hoping they could be giving less right now. But I think, you know, the really, the most progressive foundations right now are saying, hold on, what do we exist for? Why have we got this big stack of cash, this endowment that we you know, take the interest from to fund our work. Why has that money got to exist into the future mm. if when it's needed is right now? And I think in times like this where, because I am, I'm, I'm an optimist, but I think I've got to be a realist about where we are right now. The next couple of years are going to get much, much worse. So I think philanthropy is going to be taking a long look in the, in the mirror and some foundations, some philanthropists, I think will step up and they will do great things. And it may be in terms of giving more, but um, I'm not sure just giving more gets you to where you need to, to get to anyway. I think it's got to be, it's got to be really differently as well as more. We've got to be investing in the ways that will, um, you know, offer some promise of, of transformation rather than just, you know, 10% more on what's needed today. What are your hopes for how the charity landscape might develop with the support of open philanthropy? And what examples do we have of this already happening? As I said before, you know, philanthropy is the freest money in society. So it could really transform. And I think it's always it's always tempting to 
to imagine the future just based on the present. And I don't think I don't think we have to. I think the my dream for where open philanthropy might take us is to a really very different world in which there isn't this sort of competition between organizations for resources. There's much more of a recognition of the fact that, you know, there might be 17,000 organizations across the UK doing essentially the same thing in communities and all of the funders that want to support that thing, they just know how to fund all of those organizations through a structure that gets the money out to them at once. Mm. And all of those organizations maybe are working together in a coordinated way so that they don't have to have 17,000 different application processes with 4,000 different funders, you know, that that structure, it doesn't make sense. But we can change that, you know, we can network stuff, we can connect stuff, we know we can, we've done it in other sectors. And I think, you know, underneath that, the, the real shift that I think would be transformative would be to say, we could be the the open sector. And by open there, I'm really meaning open source. We could say that all of the all of the approaches or models or services that we uh, provide, that in application forms, we pretend are entirely unique and we compete to be, you know, anointed with the good favor of these magical funders. We could just fess up and say that this is the stuff that we do. And we share that in an open source way and we find out it's pretty much the same. We can build on each other's stuff, but we become the, the, the open source sector. And then people know that because there's no point individual organizations owning their own models or approaches mm. or whatever in the sector that is for public benefit. Uh, and here I feel I have to quote Elbow rather lovely song about the building of New York and um, multicultural society coming together in lots of ways. But there's a line in, in that song, everybody owns the great ideas. And I, I just think that is the case in our sector. If, there, if anyone has a great idea about to, how to help people in a particular situation, whether that's young people and mental health or people with Parkinson's or whatever, then what the hell are we doing pretending any one of them might own that idea? Surely that's for everyone. Surely that's on behalf of all of the possible people that we could benefit. And so I think uh, the, the ultimate dream is that we're a sector in which we kind of we operate as though that were the case and we're funded as though that were the case and we don't try and compete with each other based on uh, you know how unique or special we are actually uh, because i don't think it's in in our differences that we are special i think it's in our similarities i think it's in that togetherness and then i think then we might be a sector that could operate you know at a hundred times the output of what comes in because we're all connected up and, uh, and we're all joined up and if that sounds like a bit of a mad far off dream there are lots of bits of, uh, of industry that have done that, you know, the, the devices that we're talking to each other through today, um, the, the signals are going through, the data is going through a bunch of servers that are all running on open source software. And that's stuff that's built by a bunch of software engineers and nobody specific owns it. It's owned by everyone and the community and it works.
Now, if they can do that to, to make servers work, I'm pretty sure we can do that in the charity sector to make helping people and working with people work better. Tris Lumley, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thanks, Samuel. It's been a pleasure. big thank you there to Tris Lumley for sharing his insights and expertise with us here on Charity Chats. Philanthropy that invites others in is inclusive, open to co-creation, transparent and willing to share methods and outcomes with other organisations is open philanthropy. Trist used the analogy of the current fundraising landscape typically looking like a scattering of Lego bricks, with each funder and each charity working independently rather than working together to build long-term and progressive change. Trist talks about philanthropy as being the freest money available and that it has the power of making a difference, especially in the current situation where demand is far outstripping supply. Despite this, rather than looking to increase philanthropy to the charity sector, Tris thinks the answer will be evolving how philanthropy works and that this may be something the charity sector has the power to do. We've spoken before on the podcast about the proposition of unifying charities and funders in a more effective way and developing a unified approach or consortium approach from charities. Tris spoke about how the power in the relationship between funders and charities still largely sits with the funder. Charities historically have had little power in these relationships and the very term charity may be problematic in addressing this. However, Tris talks about the shifting of power and that there may be opportunities in charities working more collaboratively to demonstrate a greater impact and better chance to affect bigger change and that this in turn may help charities to lead funders into supporting them and more effectively drive the agenda for change. Tris talked about the work that NPC are doing to create funds within the financial hardship space in the UK. They've invited organisations into that space who have set the agenda and are making the financial decisions as well as co-creating and co-designing how the funds are spent. There are other models of collaboration in action as well as a rise in participatory grant making where people with lived experience are helping to guide where funds are invested to affect change. If ever there was a time for charities to seek new ways of delivering for their beneficiaries and show leadership to others and funders too uh, by speaking more candidly and being open for collaboration, that time is surely now. We all have a role to play in creating a more transparent, collaborative and inclusive charity sector. So let today be the beginning of that journey. So thank you, dear listener for getting this far with us we hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast we'd love to hear either way it's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors this episode of charity chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor work for good work for good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable unrestricted income from business sales they're on a mission to help charities unlock some of the 2.3 trillion pounds in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side, the commercial participation agreement, of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource and legal fees, and streamlines supporter experience, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. We'd also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, 
Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And of course, Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.